Good morning, Watermark. Today's scripture reading is Acts chapter 1, 6 through 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taking up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Good morning, Watermark. Um, So for those of you who have yet to meet, my name is Emily Carlisle, and as Travis mentioned, I'm one of the elders, Um, and it is a joy and a privilege to be here with you this morning. And before we get started, I actually have a confession to make. Um, I normally attend the 9 a.m. service sitting right over there in the last week um, when Tommy preached a very beautiful message about times and seasons, my immediate gut reaction was to doubt the work of the Spirit, Um, and I'm ashamed to admit that, Um, but just a few minutes into his sermon, that doubt started to dissipate, and instead I started marveling at God's sovereignty and how God had orchestrated two sermons about times and seasons two weeks in a row by two different people in the same community. So you're going to hear another sermon about times and seasons this morning, but I promise you it'll be a bit different. Um, So if you will pray with me. Dear God, um, we thank you for this opportunity to just be able to gather together this morning um, and to be able to worship and glorify you communally. Um, I pray that you would help us all to have open minds and hearts to your truths um, that you have for each of us individually this morning. And I pray um, that you would just give me clarity of speech and of thought, and that it would be your words and not mine that are proclaimed this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So I don't know how many other native tampans there are in the room. Um, But... Um, For me, growing up in Tampa, the idea of seasons was always a tad bit confusing. (laughs) Um, I mean, our play clothes look the same all year round, right? T-shirt and shorts, the only real difference being that in January, we glistened in our T-shirt and shorts, but in July, we drenched our T-shirt and shorts. Um, So while we get to experience a lot of beautiful weather year round, I think that one of the the things that we lack is we lack the benefit of four distinct natural seasons to help us usher in new periods of time. We don't have mass changing of the leaves or first snowfalls or first growth on bare trees. Um, So instead, a lot of us choose to participate in the American cultural passage of time where we rush from celebration to celebration. One month of Halloween followed by two months of Christmas then New Year's and the Super Bowl, Valentine's Day and Mardi Gras, St. Patrick's Day and Cinco de Mayo. 
Now, whether you are a celebration to celebration hopper or not, everybody has some way in which they choose to mark the passage of time. And however it is that we choose to mark the passage of time, year after year, it provides both shape and meaning to our lives. About a year ago, um, I started to become fascinated with the idea of liturgical time or church time. Um, And Christians throughout the world, Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant alike, uh, many of them choose to mark the passage of time by following the liturgical or the church calendar. And I've come to discover over the past year that the liturgical calendar can help us to reorient how we view time. It can provide meaning and rhythm and boundaries to time so that it no longer has to be seen as arbitrary. Um, Rather, it can be sacred centering around the story of Christ. And so every year, the liturgical calendar offers us the opportunity to retell the story of Jesus. And it provides what, at least for me, is a much-needed reminder that time does not revolve around ourselves, but around God. What God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. Um, So this morning, I would like to take the opportunity to talk about three things. Firstly, to give a brief overview of the liturgical calendar and the invitation that each of the seasons within the church year offers us to participate more fully in the life and work of Christ. Um, And then I would like to look at this passage from the beginning of the book of Acts and how it helps us to usher in the last and the longest season of the church year, the season of ordinary time. And then lastly, I would like to look at how this season of ordinary time can inform our lives as followers of Jesus. So I should start by saying that no place in scripture demands the recognition of the liturgical year. Um, And for that matter, Christians that choose to follow the liturgical year, there's not one universally recognized version. It does vary a bit by denomination or branch of Christianity. Um, So you're probably wondering, how is the liturgical calendar arranged? Um, And very simply, it is arranged around the life of Jesus. And it's set up in such a way that allows for the process of slow, sure immersion into the life of Christ. Um, So there are six seasons, as you can see in the diagram behind me. And if you look at late November, early December, that is where the liturgical year starts. Um, It starts with the season of Advent that lasts for four Sundays prior to Christmas. And it is the season of Advent that is a season of expectant waiting, where we await the promised Messiah. And this season offers us the invitation to learn to be a people who yearn, a people who yearn for those things that God has promised to bring us, restoration and reconciliation. The season of Advent ends as the season of Christmas begins, and this, of course, is a time where we celebrate how our triune God reduced the distance between himself and humanity through the incarnation, through bodily participation in this worldly suffering, through entering into the messiness of our fallen existence. And so the season of Christmas offers us the opportunity to rejoice in God's promise fulfilled. After the 12 days of the season of Christmas, we then um, are ushered into the season of Epiphany, or the first season of ordinary time. 
And this season lasts anywhere from four to nine weeks, depending upon the year. Um, But it starts with the Holy Day of Epiphany. And in Western Christianity, Epiphany celebrates the visit of the Magi to baby Jesus. But in Eastern Christianity, it actually celebrates Jesus' baptism by John the Baptist. Either way, Epiphany um, ushers in the next several weeks of the first season of Ordinary Time, where we are invited to see how God and his glory are made known through Jesus' life and public ministry. So this first season of Ordinary Time focuses on Jesus' life and works. The next, season of ordina- uh, or the next season in the church year is the season of Lent. Um, and it is in this season that lasts for 40 days minus Sundays prior to Easter that we enter into the 40-day fast that Jesus took in the wilderness and we align our hearts with the suffering of Jesus. The season of Lent is a season of self-examination and preparation and repentance. And it offers us the opportunity to journey towards the cross alongside Jesus and to reflect on what our lives would be like without Christ's resurrection from death. The season of Lent then culminates with Holy Week where Jesus rides into Jerusalem, has the Last Supper with his disciples, and then is crucified and buried. Holy Week ends as the season of Easter begins. Um, And this season is, of course, the height of the church year as we celebrate Christ's resurrection from the grave and the reconciling of God with humanity as Jesus becomes our living hope. The season of Easter offers us the opportunity to reflect on the mysterious paradox that life indeed follows death. And so in this 50-day season of Easter, um, the first 40 days are to celebrate the life and work of post-resurrection Jesus. And then the last 10 mark the passage of time between Jesus' ascension and the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit is poured out as a gift on the early church. The last season of the liturgical year um, is the season after Pentecost, or the second season of ordinary time. Um, And so this season lasts for up to 29 weeks in the civil calendar year, so more than half of the year every year. And it is a time in which we celebrate um, the God's continual work in the world and our role um, that God has us play in the ongoing life and work of Jesus. This second season of Ordinary Time then ends and culminates um, with Christ the King Sunday, where Jesus is celebrated as king over all creation. And then the liturgical year begins anew with the season of Advent. So that's a brief overview of the liturgical calendar and the invitation that each of the seasons offers us um, to participate in the life and work of Christ. Um, but you're probably wondering how exactly do people actually utilize the liturgical calendar? Um, it's not exactly like they have it so ingrained in them that they, you know, text their friends and ask if they're available for dinner on the fifth day of the season of Easter. It's not quite how it works. Um, instead, there are two commonly utilized tools um, that help people to sort of embrace each liturgical season. And those tools are the lectionary and the daily lectionary. Um, And they both um, allow 
um, and create a structured way to cover the entire range of biblical proclamation on a regular basis, and they are situated around the liturgical seasons. So a lectionary is nothing more than a compiled series of readings from scripture, and usually every week the lectionary has a reading from the Psalms, an an Old Testament reading, a gospel reading, and then an epistle reading. Um, And in Protestant churches that choose to follow a lectionary, the most commonly utilized one is the Revised Common Lectionary, and it is situated on a three-year cycle. Um, So over the course of that three-year cycle, all of the main passages from the Bible are covered. There's also the daily lectionary, which is um, sometimes called the daily office readings. Um, And for churches that choose to utilize the daily office, such as the Anglican tradition, um, it it helps um, in two ways. Firstly, it can help people um, as a guide for their daily practice of reading through the scriptures. Um, But then it can also serve as a means through which people can more fully embrace each liturgical season since the daily office readings are situated around the liturgical year. So our passage for today, um, in terms of where it is situated in the liturgical calendar. So this passage from the beginning of the book of Acts documents Christ's ascension. So technically speaking, it is situated in the season of Easter. Um, However, the interaction that Jesus has with his apostles immediately preceding his ascension, helps to provide clarity of purpose for the season of ordinary time, and that is the season in which we currently reside. So let's go ahead and look at um, the first verse together. So verse 6 says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Okay, so firstly, I feel like both the beginning and the end of this passage paint the apostles in a fairly unfavorable light. They just aren't getting it. And they aren't getting things that Jesus has tried to repeatedly explain to them. And I don't know about you all, but for me, that is something that I can readily identify with. I can't tell you how many times over the course of my 31 years of life, God has tried to gently and lovingly get me to understand something better about God's character or about who I am as his daughter. And it was probably like talking to a brick wall. In this instance, um, the apostles were really struggling with all of their mistaken notions about the kingdom of God. Um, They showed up that day to meet Jesus, anticipating immediate establishment of God's kingdom. And what they were envisioning was political and territorial in nature. I mean, they they asked Jesus when he was going to restore the kingdom to Israel. They were hoping that he would take back the physical territory of their ancestral homeland and rule over it. They had nationalistic aspirations, this desire for their people group to gain and maintain power. They were hoping for political dominion. And Jesus is going to go on to make clear that God's kingdom is no territorial concept. You can't point to it on a map. There are no spatial boundaries to God's kingdom. Um, So he goes on to address their question in the next two verses. Um, So verse 7, he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. 
So Jesus starts his response by just straight up rebuking the apostles for their desire to be in control and to know, or perhaps even just for their lack of patience in awaiting the arrival of God's kingdom. He's going to go on in the next verse um, to address their question, but he chooses to do so in a rather indirect fashion. Jesus chooses to address the idea of power, and power is inherent in the concept of a kingdom. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 8, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The kingdom of God, which is to say God's rule set up in the lives of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, this kingdom holds power that looks drastically different than the power of human kingdoms. And if the apostles were to think back to their time walking alongside Jesus, they would quickly realize that unlike human kingdoms, God's kingdom is spread by witnesses, not by soldiers. It is spread by the gospel of peace, not declarations of war. And they will soon come to realize that it is spread by the work of the Spirit, not force of arms. And so in this proclamation, when Jesus declares that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, Jesus is alluding to the day of Pentecost, a day that will come 10 days after this last interaction. And the power that will be poured out on the early church that day is the same power as the risen Jesus. Because as Trinitarian theology affirms, Jesus and the Spirit are interdependent. So Jesus is answering their question by saying, you're it. God's kingdom will be made manifest through, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. And the Holy Spirit will empower you to be witnesses. And sure, it'll start in Israel, in the capital city of Jerusalem. But then you're going to be sent to the immediate environs of Judea. And then to a place you don't like so much, to the despised Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. So Jesus is making clear that God's kingdom is no nationalistic, geographically bound entity. It is international in membership. And they, we, are to be witnesses to the end of the earth. He goes on in, or it goes on in verse 9 to say, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. So during the 40 days post-resurrection, Jesus kept appearing, disappearing, reappearing. So this very public, visible ascension was, practically speaking, to let them know that he was gone for good. It's as if Jesus was saying, okay, I'm going for real this time, guys. Wait in Jerusalem for the next person. They'll be here soon. And ten days later, the Holy Spirit appears. And it is on this day of Pentecost, with the gift of the Holy Spirit poured out, um, that the second season of ordinary time is ushered in. So the last two verses say, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven 
will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So God saw a need to send, presumably to angels, these men in white robes, to speak to the apostles immediately after Christ's ascension. It's as if he knew that they would need a bit of extra prompting. And I can just sort of imagine this interaction. The angels coming up to the apostles and saying, hey guys, remember just like, Two minutes ago, literally the last thing that Jesus said to you. Remember that? Why are you staring off into the sky? Don't be sky scanners. He will make it clear when he comes again. But until then, he just gave you a mandate. So get on with it. And it is this mandate to be witnesses to the resurrection that frames the second season of ordinary time. And in the midst of living out this directive, we enter into a rhythm of waiting and hoping. And this rhythm of waiting and hoping actually can be found throughout the liturgical calendar. We wait and hope in the season of Advent and then Christmas. We wait and hope in the season of Lent and then Easter. We wait and hope in this long season of ordinary time. And then it culminates with our celebration of Christ as king over all creation. We live in what is called liminal time. And if something is liminal, then it occupies space on both sides of a threshold. So we live in the already and in the not yet. And in the midst of living in the already, we wait and hope for the not yet. But make no mistake, this waiting is not passive. We have an active hope that God's kingdom will be made manifest on earth as it is in heaven. And so this is this hope is what motivates us to work towards that reality in the midst of ordinary time. And so as a result, this season of ordinary time is a time of fulfillment. It is a time where we are called to enter into a movement that God has already begun. And so living as witnesses to Christ's resurrection in this second season of ordinary time is going to necessitate that we structure and define our time in ways that imitate Christ's life and work in the first season of ordinary time. And so because of that, I would like to take a few minutes to look at just that, how Jesus chose to structure his time and the space in which he chose to dwell. So Jesus began his public ministry um, by declaring his fulfillment of the prophecy from Isaiah. Um, Luke 4 recounts for us how he walked into the temple, unrolled the scroll, and declared the following. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. During his life on earth, Jesus chose to bring about great social and political reversals that uprooted the existing order imposed by the powers and principalities of this earth. Think about it. Jesus chose to arrange himself in space in such a way that he reduced the distance between himself 
and those who were oppressed. And in so doing, he built beloved community through works of mercy and justice. For instance, um, the new freedom and roles given to Jesus' female disciples totally upended the patriarchal social order of the day. In a society that did not accept female testimony in law, women were the first witnesses to the resurrection. And in a day and age where women were forbidden from learning the Torah, the Gospels identify several women amongst the circle of followers whom Jesus taught. And it wasn't just the patriarchal component of the social order that Jesus chose to uproot. Um, Amongst his inner circle, Jesus included several fishermen and at least one tax collector, people who were marginalized in Roman society. And story after story in the Gospels recount Jesus choosing to heal social outcasts. Now, in addition to great social reversals, Jesus also brought about great political reversals as well. Jesus as Lord is a bold rejection of the Roman Caesar as Lord. And so those people who chose to pledge allegiance to Jesus were pledging allegiance to a new and drastically divergent kingdom, one that put them at odds with the powers and principalities of the Roman Empire, um, and that cost many of them their lives. Even in his death, Jesus chose to bring about a great political reversal. He chose to interrupt the cycle of um, violence and retribution that was at the heart of the Roman Empire and unfortunately still at the heart of our very broken world. So he chose to interrupt this cycle by taking an instrument for state violence, the cross, and reclaiming it as the instrument to end the cycle of oppression and victim-making. Jesus chose to engage the unjust social and political systems that existed in the first century by first offering works of mercy, feeding the hungry, giving drink to the thirsty, healing the sick, befriending social outcasts, And after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, it was met need and belonging that helped convert many in those earliest centuries of Christianity. And what fueled the spread of the faith in those earliest centuries and continues to do so today is the practice of beloved community. And the work of building beloved community requires not only works of mercy, but also campaigns to dismantle the structural injustices that create that unmet need in the first place. And it's through these works of mercy that we get to know people um, and can see their humanity and better understand their history, and that helps to breed compassion within us. And it is precisely those friendships with people who are despised and marginalized in our society that make the work of seeking justice all the more personal and urgent for those of us who do embody a lot of privilege and who would otherwise remain unaffected by that social evil and injustice. 
And so by building beloved community through works of justice and mercy, we are invited to participate in the divine movement of God's kingdom being built here and now. So in this second season of Ordinary Time, we, the church, are tasked with being witnesses to the resurrection. And we are called to define and structure our time in ways that imitate Christ's life and work in the first season of Ordinary Time. What better way to be witnesses to the resurrection than to work towards resurrection in the midst of our ordinary rhythms? Are we willing to be followers of Jesus that embody the good news and unleash resurrection power in the ordinariness of our everyday lives? Are we willing to unleash resurrection power in our homes, walking alongside our spouse who is struggling with addiction, or dropping our swords and humbly apologizing for harsh words spoken and seeking peace, or showering our rebellious children with grace and forgiveness and love? Are we willing to unleash resurrection power in our neighborhoods, delaying bringing in the groceries for 15 minutes so we can ask our neighbor how her week is going, or mowing the lawn for that neighbor that recently called code enforcement on us, or delivering a meal to, the na- to our neighbor down the block? Are we willing to unleash resurrection power on the street corner, offering a smile, a hug, a bottle of water to a person experiencing homelessness? Are we willing to unleash resurrection power by speaking truth to the powers and principalities of this world, speaking out against injustice at the Neighborhood Association meeting or the Metropolitan Planning Commission meeting or at the ballot box or by adding our bodies to the sea of marchers? God's kingdom is being established here, now, in this season of ordinary time. The Holy Spirit is upon us, brothers and sisters, guiding and prompting, and it is through the power of the Holy Spirit that we are called to cultivate beloved community and to unleash resurrection power through works of mercy and justice. As we enter into a time of communion, Um, Let us ask God to draw us into those uncomfortable spaces where God already dwells and where Jesus makes his presence concrete. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your abundant mercy and grace that you have poured out upon us. We thank you for Jesus' body and blood shed on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins, God. And we thank you that you are continuing your mighty work in this world to bring about restoration and wholeness and reconciliation. And we are grateful just for the small part that we get to play in that divine movement. I pray that you would speak to each of us individually in these movements. Um, about ways in which you are calling us to greater works of mercy and justice in the midst 
of our ordinary rhythms. Take some time. Talk to Jesus.